Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. Everyone seems to have a car love story, no matter how uninvolved with their cars they seem to be. I am not a car person, but my heart will always mourn my first car, a 1998 Volvo V70 station wagon who passed before her time. And I was searching for a really iconic road trip photo to use for this episode, outlined against the Oregon sun or in the dazzling lights of LA. But all I found was this Instagram post from when I banged it at the Achilles heel of old cars, the intersection of fender, bumper, and hood, which, given that it was 14 years old at the time, was a total. And I totally forgot that I had done this, and I don't even know where these things are anymore, but I pulled off the little silver Volvo letters from the rear of the car as a memento, or maybe like a little alphabet necklace, and uh, I wrote a little love letter to the Volvo. So indulge me, I'm going to read it, because it shows just how crazy we are about our cars. Dear and beloved Volvo, we've been through a lot together. When they cannibalize your insides, I hope you find new life in a lurid sports car. I only wish you could have gone down in a demolition derby blaze of Viking death befitting your Swedish heart, instead of a little whimper. Get sloshed on mead in Volvo Holla for me. And don't let Thor fondle your brake pads too much. Love and motor oil, Stephanie. All this to say, Americans love their cars. Even those of us who bike to work every day love their cars. Even the most environmentally anxious of us still love our cars. Why? When did cars become so wrapped up in the idea of American identity that we can't pull ourselves away from them, knowing full well that they are expensive, emission-spewing death machines. And why are we so wedded to the idea of cars that it's more appealing to have electric robot cars roaming the street instead of actually investing in public transportation? To answer some of these questions, we're joined this episode by Dan Albert, who has loved cars far longer than I have been alive. He writes about the past, present, and future of cars for N Plus One magazine, and his new book, are we there yet? Hold some clues to where we're going on this automotive journey. Thanks for coming into the studio, Dan. My pleasure to be with you. So, why did you write a book about cars? Obviously, you must love them very much. 
mm-hmm. order to write about them. I love them and I hate them. Um, two things come to mind. One is I feel like we live kind of immersed in this world of the automobile. We live in a, a, a we live lives that the automobile has made. Even if you don't own an automobile, you're you're living in a landscape of the automobile, and we don't realize it. We don't understand how strange that is. You know, you'll you'll spend a lifetime. You'll probably travel a million miles or more in a vehicle. We travel three trillion miles a year as a country. Um, that never existed before, and so uh, I want people to think about how bizarre that is. I started out, you know, going back to to my Matchbox days, really enjoying cars, anything with wheels, really. And as I got older, and I lived through the energy crisis and looked at. Uh, mass transit, uh, it really made sense that this is absurd the way we're living with these cars. Um, And I I came to be very critical of it. Um, And then I began to study it as an undergraduate. I did my PhD on automotive safety. uh, And I just decided it's really the most important technology uh, in the world. The car. The car. So I guess this betrays my deep ignorance of car genealogy. But I had no idea that electric cars began in the 1890s, 80s. You know, they were really early technology and, you know, now I drive a Prius. So I thought it might be useful if you could sort of sketch a big picture, cliff note style of the major turning points in the past hundred odd years of automobility and, you know, where the big changes happened. That's great. I'll start very early. And uh, I think one of the first points I make in the book is the automobiles invented a lot of times. You can go back to the 17th century, the 18th century, early 19th century, and you have self-propelled road vehicles, uh, most of them steam-powered, but they're perfectly viable. Um, You know, we look at them now and we say, oh, well, that technology didn't work. But the reality is we only say that because we now live in the world of the gasoline automobile. So you have to understand that electric cars actually came first. Ferdinand Porsche, who's famous for the Volkswagen Beetle and also obviously for Porsche sports cars, his first car was an electric car. And they really did work as transportation. Um, The same things we say today about electric cars, plenty of range for everybody's daily use, uh, quieter, more environmentally friendly, uh, easier to operate. All of those things were true in the 1890s. What happened, though, was the business model for electric cars didn't quite work in the same way we think of cars right now. They were very expensive. They were heavy. They had to have essentially an infrastructure, just like you think of of Uber or even an electric company. They had to have really a monopoly on the space. And so they worked in the city. um, But they also didn't do something else that gasoline cars did, which is adventure. They really... Um, were almost too tame, and, and early automotive engineers talked about this. They're just too easy. There's no noise, there's no grease, there's no uh, smoke. And America adopted from uh, France and Europe uh, a different kind of car, which was uh, a very powerful gasoline-powered car. And it wasn't really about transportation in the very early days. It was about adventure. It was about having fun. These were very rich guys, uh, you know, millionaires, uh, billionaires by today's standards. And they collected tens of cars, and they they drove them for the fun of it. Um, and, and that became a very important piece of the early car culture. 
There's a very famous song from uh, the period called uh, In My Merry Oldsmobile. And it's just about driving around, you know, guy and a girl in their little uh, buggy and how much fun it is. Um, so, so that's an important component. I think, um, you know, to skip ahead a little bit, one of the most important things about the way the automobile has become so embedded in American culture is the degree to which the car companies and, and automobile production were uh, fundamental to the economy. One in seven jobs at its peak was uh, automobile-related. And then really during World War II, it was the automotive industry that uh, won the war. Um, and so coming out of World War II, you have this period of peace, but it's really Cold War. And driving became very much a, an expression of uh, what it was to be American. We weren't a bunch of communists driving tractors. So since the 80s, it's been kind of halcyon days for driving in the United States. But now we're in something of an unusual spot when there is a lot of enthusiasm about new car technologies, like driverless cars and electric cars, mm -hmm. coupled with a lot of criticism about cars' impact on the environment and safety and a whole bunch of stuff that we'll get into. But I want to point out a line from your introduction, which I think does a really good job of pointing out that all of the problems we have with cars are not inherent to car technology. They're a result of a lot of choices that we've made along the way. Um, so you write, the various problems supposedly endemic to the current model of automobility do not arise naturally from the technology of the driven car. That they have not been solved before speaks not to inadequate technology, but to choices made about the relative value of, for example, speed, economic efficiency, and human life. So the electric car from 1890 clearly sacrificed on the altar of speed and uh, masculine sexiness, say. What are the other later sacrifices that are made? I would say there's a continual sacrifice. Um, you take the issue of safety and speed. We know that uh, about 35 to 40,000 people in the United States die every year on the highways. We know that speed is a huge part of that. We know that alcohol, uh, uh, driving under the influence, is a huge part of that. We have the technology to stop those things, and yet we've never uh, insisted upon them. Um, we also know that, for example, the 55-mile-an-hour speed limit, which existed in the 1970s, saved a lot of lives. Doesn't seem to matter doesn't seem to matter anymore. We've raised the speed limits. We're sort of okay with 40,000. You know, if it gets to 50,000 or 60,000, then you start to get a real response. But there is a real possibility right now for something called Vision Zero. Its motto essentially is, no amount of human life is worth any amount of mobility. That's never before been said. We always had this ideology of mobility is good, and we will pursue mobility. If it's dangerous, we'll do something to uh, try to protect ourselves, whether that's uh, red lights or airbags or anything else. But we privilege mobility. And uh, that's always really been the case. That's why we get highways. That's why we get um, parking, right? We, we get all of the things that make it possible to use this machine, which, again, on the face of it, is not terribly useful as a transportation device. There's so many more efficient ways in terms of the environment, in terms of moving people, in terms of access to the resources of daily life that would work better. 
but we continually come back to enabling this technology. Right. Well, and you refer to it as saving auto mobility from itself, which I think is really like a useful frame because it seems like every time we do use technology that is available to us to make cars safer or more environmentally friendly or more efficient or whatever, it is in an effort to continue using cars. And this driverless future or this completely electric future, that's all in an effort to do the same thing, right? Save automobility from itself. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I, you know, not to blow my horn in terms of that phrase, because it's not really my phrase in a sense. It's this idea that every time a problem arises, we do something. So, for example, in the 1950s, smog becomes a huge problem in Los Angeles. What do we get? Catalytic converters, solutions to that that problem. Uh, now, excess carbon in the atmosphere is a huge problem. What do we do? Electric cars. We're really saving automobility from itself. Highways. Highways were put in to make travel safer as much as anything else. Now, of course, we talk about the driverless car as the end of the car culture, but in reality, it's an extension of the car culture. Maybe nobody's driving, but they're still cars. Uh, so we continually find ways to reinforce, reestablish, rebuild the car as the centerpiece of our lives. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not isolated to cars, right? We see the same thing in a lot of other aspects of modern consumer culture, carbon offsets or solar panels, rather than, you know, addressing the source of things, consumption or cars. <laughs> I think that's absolutely correct. And, and uh, you know, part of that phrase comes from investigations of the New Deal and that what Roosevelt did was save capitalism from itself, that it really was um, up against some very radical ideas of reorganizing the way uh, we live, reorganizing the economic system. And so you're absolutely right. That is definitely a pattern of social behavior, which is to continually reinforce the incumbent uh, systems and not to think more broadly or more radically, if you will, uh, about what kind of change would really solve particular problems. Okay, well, speaking of, of change and the future of cars, um, we have an America now where younger people are buying fewer cars. We're seeing a resurgence in cities, at least of public transportation usage and ride hailing. Even if it is just isolated to like wealthier echelons, it's still happening and it's affecting national numbers. So given that, what do you think the future is for cars. And if the future is, in fact, more public transportation, more ride hailing, more of these other things, how do you redesign a country that was built for cars for a future where there are fewer of them? I think that's the ultimate question and one that if I had the answer, I'd be king of the road. <laughs> um, I, I will say a couple of things. One is we talk about uh, congestion or mobility problems. In a lot of ways, those are really land use problems. We talk about a housing problem, you know, a housing crisis. People can't afford to live places. That's a mobility crisis. If you could take a high-speed train from out where the land is cheap into the city for a job or, or wherever for a job, um, you wouldn't have that cost problem. When we look ahead to a world of 
um, mobility alternatives, and people speak of a mobility revolution beyond the driverless cars, all kinds of new ways to get around. We really have to think about which of those technologies will be able to inhabit an automotive world. It's really, really hard to have a train line where you go out into uh, the, the automobile suburbs and somehow people can walk home. You know, you just can't do it. You can't have one and the other. And so what you really have to begin to think about is creating new infrastructure that will create new landscapes. Um, I think what, what's interesting looking at the history is the, the suburbs were created even before the automobile by things like uh, electric trolley cars. So you begin to very quickly expand the city. What's different between then and now is it was all fresh. It was all a new idea. And I would love to see us have some new ideas, um, new ideas about what mass transit can do. I don't think we have that imagination that we had in the 1930s. We don't have the, the crisis that they really had in the 1930s in terms of safety, in terms of the economy, to say, you know what, we're going to create something entirely new. Whether we want it to be built around driverless cars or built around a, a bigger metro system, I, I would hope that we could start there. We could start by thinking about what kind of new world we want to have as opposed to just trying to fix the automobile world we live in. So one of the futures that's proposed that you've mentioned already is the driverless car. A couple years ago, it seemed like driverless cars were just around the corner. They were going to be on the street in the next five years. Watch out. But that's looking further and further off now. So what's your take on the future of driverless cars? I guess I would start by understanding where the driverless cars we're talking about today come from. There was really an opportunity in the 1950s, certainly in the 1990s, to develop hands-off, uh, feed-off cars. They were even proved to, to work fine. But they really needed a particular kind of infrastructure. It wasn't hugely expensive, but the government had to step in and do that. That's not what's on the table today. I refer to those almost jokingly as communitarian uh, driverless cars. We really were all in this together. What we have now I refer to as Anne Randian uh, driverless cars, which is these companies, as you say, are telling us they're coming, they're coming soon. Um, but why are they coming and why are they coming in the particular way they are? They're being designed to operate without any changes to the infrastructure. They need to be able to make left turns. They need to be able to drive on a country road where the uh, road signs are broken and the lane markers aren't painted very well. Um, and it's hard to understand why we need that. Certainly the data, the polling shows that a lot of people aren't that interested in that. And I think you're absolutely right. There's sort of this period of disillusionment we've entered um, where these companies are realizing, actually, it's a lot harder to do this than we thought. You know, they always talk about how bad human drivers are. Maybe we're not that bad. Maybe it's just that hard to drive, right? So... I do think there's a, a future in which the uh, driverless car comes into being, but I don't see it as a situation where you go out and buy a car that drives itself. I see it more as Uber getting rid of its drivers, right? So you have this, this new form of transport, um, and that absolutely changes so much about society. Everything from gender relations to, to the sense of what it means to be an American to ideas of ownership, um, all of that changes. How? 
Sorry, can't no. can't make a broad statement like you're that. You're right. You're <laughs> right. I know. I can't get away with it. Okay, so let's talk. Um, let's talk about gender relations, right? So we know that the uh, automobile is in all kinds of ways constructed as male. Some of that goes back to before the automobile and who dealt with machines and all of that. On the other hand, we know that it's changed a little bit, but men tend to drive about twice the miles as women. What happens when you have a driverless car and no one's driving? All of those things I talked before about my Mary Oldsmobile, that's a guy driving his girl out into the, the country. Suddenly that dynamic uh, changes. We talk about ownership. Automobiles are the second largest purchase most people make besides a house. Suddenly you're not invested in, in doing that. Suddenly all of those things about um, the car as sort of a suit of clothes as a personal expression go away. So now you need to think about what is your public representation. And then finally, and just to get a little economic on you, um, the automobile is a fixed asset. You know, you spend $35,000 and you have it. It sits around most of the time. You don't use it most of the time. And so one of the arguments from the Silicon Valley types uh, is, well, we're going to use them all the time. These cars are going to be moving all the time. We're going to uh, completely capture the value of that vehicle. From the passenger's perspective, you're now paying for every mile you go. Whereas when you owned it, those extra miles you weren't paying for in a sense, right? You, the more you used it, the cheaper every mile was because you already have this asset. You're just utilizing it more. And that may, more than anything else, more than anything technological, get people to rethink mobility. That makes sense. Yeah, totally. It also sounds really familiar because wasn't that what sort of busted the EV cars from the 1890s? They were trying to capture every cent, use them all the time, mobility as service, and yet, boom, crash. Yeah. 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 I mean, so you're talking about the electric vehicle company, which is fascinating. And the idea was we will have taxis. You can lease them for a month if you want. You will even sell one to you. They already had what, what everybody's talking about now. You can have a car in any flavor you want. You can rent it by the mile, rent it by the week, rent it by the month, or buy it, right? That's all the exciting new uh, uh, stuff going on in terms of business. It fell apart because of the business itself. That particular business did, frankly, what a lot of uh, companies seem to now be doing, which is overcapitalized. They brought on all this money. They were going to expand beyond belief. Um, and this is, you know, the story of Lyft and Uber. But at the same time that was going on, at the same time you had this very sensible networked electric car thing going on, you had a bicycle craze. People were starting to bike, getting out on the open road uh, and zooming along. And that really became something people wanted. People wanted to get out and have fun, go to the country, have a picnic. None of those things were available in the business model of uh, the electric car, the mobility as service. Right. Well, and then that bicycle got sort of transformed into the car. But I mean, again, DC has more bike lanes now in 2019 than 10, 20 years ago. People are into cycling again. People are into all of these other things. It seems in a lot of ways like a, a repeat of past points in the history of cars. And you say at one point in your book, it's 1895 all over again. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering what's what's different this time? And I guess how can we look 
at the past, at the history of cars, at businesses that have gone bust, at the way certain modes of infrastructure were expanded so rapidly. What are the lessons there? I think one of the lessons of history is that we need to step up through government and think carefully about how we want to develop these things. The way to think about what happened with the car is it really forced out alternatives. And it forced out alternatives in part because of bad public policy. And so now um, I think of I think of it as a monoculture, right? You think of a, a cornfield and there's nothing but corn. Uh, we have nothing but cars. And so now we're hoping for more diversity and more options. And I think we need to uh, understand what it is that makes people want those options and how it is you can facilitate those options. So bike lanes, for example. Painting a bike lane is okay, but people will bike a lot more if you have a bike road. So I think a lot of it has to do with taming cars, particularly in cities, reducing speeds um, through infrastructure, making the roads narrow, bit by bit undoing the things that were done. You know, roads used to be social spaces, push carts, guys uh, selling pickles on the curb and kids playing in the street. And the car really colonized that space. And so I think we need a period of decolonization. What's really the balance between the public and private? Stop talking about mobility. Mobility means nothing. What we want is accessibility. What we want is to be able to reach easily, comfortably, happily the needs of daily life, the quotidian needs. Do we want to keep driving? Absolutely. Do we want to go have a road trip? Absolutely. But we don't have to do it for three trillion miles a year. We should be doing it for all the reasons people did it a century ago, because it was fun. The best idea is to de-link automobiles and transportation. They're two different things. There are so many more roads we could have gone down, but hopefully your commute if you're listening to this while driving, isn't too much longer, and you can bumble along the rest of the way, dreaming about our automotive, or perhaps auto-free, future. And when you get to where you're going, check out Dan Albert's new book, Are We There Yet? The American Automobile, Past, Present, and Driverless. And for an essay lamenting the loss of adventure in a driverless future, we've got one in our latest issue, The End of Driving, by Stephen Lagerfeld. Links to all that and more in the show notes. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.